Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world. Good morning, and thanks to everyone who is joining us for this call. Today, we are going to be answering the question, how exposed is the global health system to geopolitical tensions? The COVID-19 pandemic has shone a light on the fragility of systems and mechanisms we have long taken for granted. However, as the virulence of the pandemic begins to abate across much of the world, how exposed or prepared are countries for the impact of war, economic sanctions, political isolation, and new migratory patterns on existing health structures and systems. My name is Rosie Hill. I'm a senior associate here at Global Council in the Health and Life Sciences team. And today we will be looking at what impact geopolitics is having on various health systems across the world. To discuss this and more, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Ben Rolfe, formerly the founding CEO of the Singapore-based Communicable Disease Threats Initiative in Singapore, who with 25 years in public health, Dr. Rolf works at the intersection of science, policy and international relations. I'm also joined by my colleagues at Global Council, Mark Lockridge, Senior Associate in the Health and Life Sciences team based in London, and Yi Fang Li, Associate in the Trade team based in Brussels. Mark, if I could start with you, can you give us an overview of the status of the global health system at the moment and what changes we are witnessing as a result of this? People will be well aware of the situation in Ukraine right now, with a destroyed health infrastructure from treating trauma injuries and a disrupted chain of medical supplies, which now poses a huge threat to millions of people. It'd be helpful if you can just touch on this and talk us through what impact this is having upon the global health system. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you very much, Rosie. Um, I think you're right, certainly, to to touch on Ukraine there at the start. Um, just last weekend, we reached a rather grim milestone of uh, 100 recorded attacks on health infrastructure by the Russian army, a very horrifying statistic, particularly given we're only barely 50 days into this war. I would say that taking a step back, that the fundamentals of the world's health infrastructure and, and basic access to, to healthcare are, are not strong. There's wounds that have been exposed by the pandemic, and these are going to be further opened up by, by war in, in Ukraine, but countries around the world, um, and also the spectre of further war. The impact of the pandemic, I mean, people's access to, to healthcare uh, looks pretty precarious in many parts of the world. Um, extreme poverty rose in 2020 for the first time in 20 years. That was pretty much directly caused by the pandemic. 100 million more people are living in poverty now due to the pandemic, and that has enormous ramifications on access to quite basic medical care. Looking at the sort of the things that really uh, are the buttresses of the world health infrastructure, uh, I mean, the, the financial impact of the pandemic has been enormous. Major government schemes in developing nations have been delayed or cancelled due to the pandemic. If you look at a country like South Africa, say, um, they're having to put in place cuts to the public health system in light of the pandemic. And they're looking at things like testing for HIV or TB declining even further than the levels that was during the pandemic, where it was down by about 50%. So these quite big um, financial uh, investments are, are really beginning to be uh, imperiled. Looking at the global health workforce, I mean, that, that has been a, um, an area that we've seen quite massive shortages for the past decade or so, and this has been thrown into pretty stark relief by the pandemic. So we've seen interrupted flows of skilled workers, delayed training, impact on staffing ratios caused by treatment backlogs. So, so major challenges there. And supply chains, which I'm sure Yifang will touch on later, um, remain pretty far from resilient. And that's for medicines, medical devices and clinical consumables. 
I think in all this context comes Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and that has opened up, as I say, these wounds, the, the cost of living issues presented by the pandemic are being compounded. Uh, if you look at things like grain supplies and energy supplies, um, we're seeing quite big uh, effect there. And that risks pushing far greater number of people into poverty and self-driving further regional instability. Um, that can itself then lead to things like migratory changes, where people are moving into unfamiliar environments, sometimes with their livestock, and that can lead to problems with pathogens uh, of pandemic potential, but also diseases spreading as well. There's also then the question of whether Russia's invasion will actually beget further war. I mean, with the caveat that we're only 50 days into this current war, Russia's invasion hasn't progressed as the Kremlin expected, and the international response has been uh, quite robust so far. But there still remains quite a high risk of geopolitical conflict in, in Asia. If you look at uh, China's relationship with Taiwan, for example, any conflict there could have enormous ramifications for global economic stability. If you look at, in particular at the issue of um, semiconductor supply, Taiwan are an enormous producer of semiconductors. These are pretty key to medical devices and uh, the operations of digital health systems. Then if you look at things like um, clinical trials, we know that the Western Pacific leads the world in the number of clinical trials, uh, and Southeast Asia is, is the biggest growth area for clinical trials out of all the WHO regions. So even things like scientific research are at risk from um, geopolitical instability. Uh, so I think overall what we're seeing is a, a health system that's been uh, really exposed by uh, the pandemic and geopolitical conflict is coming in a pretty terrible time to, to further imperil things. Thanks, Mark. And what do you think about whether the existence of threat or geopolitical tension now needs to be priced in by governments and industry for health and life sciences? I think that's definitely the case. I think it's really strengthened in the mind of uh, businesses and, and governments. Quite a lot of the arguments around uh, resilience, I mean, particularly in supply chains, which again, I'm sure Yifeng will, will touch on, you know, there's been a big, big push towards um, supplier diversification. So that is having lots of different suppliers uh, uh, on the books at once to mitigate against things like port and factory closures in key areas. So I think geopolitical instability will certainly harden that mindset. I, I think it'll also give quite a lot of impetus to to changes we saw during the pandemic. So if we look again at something like clinical trials, uh, we saw a big move towards remote clinical trials because they can deliver quite a lot of cost effectiveness and, and more efficient clients. Uh, I can certainly see that happening in even greater number uh, in this sort of rather rocky uh, age we're seeing now geopolitically, but it, it could even force things like in silico trials. So that's when computer simulations are used to predict trial outcomes and the use of computer modeling to mimic parts of the human body and see how they react under certain stimuli. I can see quite a big push towards this and quite a, bit, a lot of investment. We've seen the, the FDA in America using uh, in silico evidence increasingly for certain drugs. Recently, uh, an atrial fibrillation drug was an indication for it was approved by, by the FDA and the EMA is doing a lot of work in this area as well. So I think what we'll see is um, businesses beginning to sort of explore these areas quite a lot uh, alongside pricing that into their existing supply chains. Brilliant. Thanks, Mark. Yifang, if I can turn to you next, with the existing just-in-time model for supply chains increasingly exposed, how might the supply of vital medicines, consumables and devices be interrupted? Um, we could look at the impact on the supply chain in three categories. So first category is direct interruption. Uh, and an example of that is Russia's export ban. So in March this year, Russia restricted exports of certain medical products, uh, such as sterile surgical catgut, 
as well as uh, certain pharmaceutical manufacturing equipment. And while this is an example of a direct export restriction, it is worth noting that medical products are usually not targets of Western sanctions for humanitarian reasons. And the second category of impact is uh, regulatory barriers. So pharmaceutical supply chains are heavily regulated every step of the way to protect patient safety. Um, these regulations could give rise to potential supply chain disruptions. An example of this is what Mark has mentioned about migration patterns. So medical products need to be transported, for example, from Ukraine to Poland to accommodate the surging medical needs in Poland. However, this could not happen instantly due to different serialization requirements between the EU and Ukraine. And the final category of supply chain interruptions is more future-oriented. So the pharmaceutical sector is very innovative. Research and development plays a critical role in the pharmaceutical supply chain. So this essentially means that we will require a forward planning uh, for the pharmaceutical supply chain. And if we look at the impact of the Ukraine crisis, the issue of the clinical trials, like Mark mentioned, stand out as a because significant numbers of clinical trials are conducted in Ukraine. And the inevitable disruption of these clinical trials don't actually have an immediate impact on the operating supply chains, but they may de delay further product launches, even with potential transition to remote clinical trials. So overall, due to the heavily regulated and innovative nature of the pharmaceutical sector, close engagement with the government and forward-looking uh, supply chain planning uh, is critical in managing the short to long-term impact on the pharmaceutical supply chain. Ben, with the geopolitical situation taking up a huge amount of bandwidth, is there a risk that international collaboration on this issue is not getting the attention or resourcing that it needs? And where does this leave us with preparing for future health pandemics and crises? Well, yeah, that risk is really playing out in real time. Um, we, we've got two major international processes going on at the moment to try and learn from the, the lessons from the pandemic and protect or prevent the next one. One is the treaty, um, the pandemic treaty that the World Health Organization are currently leading. Uh, and the other is the G20 uh, Joint uh, Finance Health Task Force, which essentially is picking up the baton from what Italy kind of was not successful in progressing under their presidency and it's now moved under the Indonesian presidency. But of course, the, the negotiation of a pandemic treaty will take years. Of course, it's led by ministries of health, which are generally not the most senior and powerful ministries within nation states. The World Health Organization is, of course, still chronically underfunded and operates largely by consensus. So the um, expectations of, of the, both the time frame and the teeth that an eventual treaty might have are somewhat low. I think the public health community had much higher expectations of the Joint Financial Health Task Force just because it's ministries of finance and health working together, obviously much more senior and powerful agencies of government coming together. But certainly at the last meeting, a lot of time was taken up condemning actions in Ukraine. Um, we've seen very little new money on the table. The money that's on the table, a lot of it is from a fixed pool of overseas development assistance rather than the sort of resources that we need to prevent another pandemic. And I have to say it's somewhat depressing from my point of view, having been involved in the H5N1, which you'll remember, although there was no human to human transmission, there was a 50% case fatality rate. Similarly, H7N9, uh, between 2013 and 2017, we saw a 40% 
case fatality rates. So, you know, the warning signals were very, very clear before the COVID crisis. Um, and looking back historically over a, a number of publications and decks that kind of passed across my desk at that time, of course, we were all talking about, you know, we must now invest, we must not let this happen again. Uh, and now we're seeing exactly the same happening, the same rhetoric, sort of somewhat post-COVID, maybe, maybe post-COVID, um, but really not much political leadership, certainly not much new money on the table. The only really new financial vehicle that seems to be on the cards is a financial intermediary fund. That the US has been pushing very hard, um, hosted by the World Bank. Uh, but even the, um, the high-level panel the G20 high level panel last year recommended we need at least 10 billion a year as a minimum investment in pandemic prevention. And nobody is talking about more than about 2 billion going through this new financial intermediary fund. So sadly, we see very little new money, uh, very limited leadership. Leadership that the US is showing is being blocked by Congress to some extent in terms of their budgetary measures. And we still, of course, have low income countries spending somewhere around an average of $20 per capita per year on health and you can't buy pandemic prevention uh, from countries that are highly exposed to you know spillover events zoonotic events from uh, encroachment of humans onto um, animal habitats you just can't buy prevention like that for twenty dollars per capita uh, you can't buy it from the fixed oda funds that we have so i say uh, it's a somewhat bleak picture i have to say Definitely does sound bleak. Um, looking eastwards, do you think countries are beginning to recognise the need to onshore or nearshore their vaccine manufacturing capabilities in light of these threats? Is that something you've particularly seen in Asia? It's definitely happening and it's happening in Africa and Asia. Um, the number of countries that are trying to get behind domestic initiatives to drastically and rapidly increase their manufacturing capacity is extraordinary. And you'll see the African Union have uh, launched a campaign to produce 60% of vaccines used in Africa in the continent by 2040. And a number of countries, Senegal, uh, South Africa, and Rwanda, many others, are trying to set up their own manufacturing industries with significant financing coming in from all quarters. The uh, European Union has pledged a billion dollars to support African vaccine manufacturing. And then in Asia, the Asian Development Bank have already provided a mixture of grant and loan financing, concessional loan financing to Bangladesh of around a billion dollars for them to start manufacturing COVID vaccines domestically. The challenge, of course, that we have, and you know, the, the leadership is certainly there. Uh, South Korea have a vice minister for vaccine manufacturing and have set up a whole raft of um, financial guarantees and products to attract vaccine manufacturing into South Korea. I think Moderna has recently announced a 200 million facility in South Korea. So the leadership is there and the financing is there. Um, the question is, what are these plants going to produce in between pandemics? Uh, of course, there's no shortage of liquidity and concessional lending um, and impetus behind this now. I think our concern, certainly my concern, is that in between pandemics, it's not really clear how these industries are going to be financially sustainable. And if they're all trying to uh, break into the routine vaccine market, it's kind of unclear what impact that might have on the market dynamics. And of course, you know, a, a common sense perspective might be that uh, increasing competition is good. Increasing manufacturing capacity could drive down the price of um, routine vaccinations for use in sub-Saharan Africa, for example. But um, somewhat counterintuitively, that may not be the case because, of course, uh, there'll be considerable pressure for the very small number of purchasers 
for these vaccines to procure from, for example, African manufacturers that may initially come at quite a significant price premium given the lack of uh, capacity and experience on the African continent in, in manufacturing these very complex, um, you know, pentavalent in many cases vaccines. And there's a whole question about regulatory capacity and how these new industries are going to be able to get new products through regulatory approval, often in from relatively weak national regulatory authorities, to get them to a standard that where they'd be recognised as suitable for export. So it's a quite complex picture, um, a lot more money floating around than solid, uh, sober analysis, I would say at this point. So it's certainly very interesting, but pretty unpredictable, I would say at this point. Great. Thanks, Ben. Yifang, looking at this from a business angle, how do you think companies and investors need to respond to this developing picture? Are there opportunities for companies to shore up existing structures and build greater resilience? Uh, this is the million dollar question. And I agree with Ben that this is uh, the onshoring is a very complex question. And there are no fixed views about onshoring so far. So I would say that the classic answer is it depends. And there are definitely elements to consider in onshoring. And if we provide three examples. Um, the first thing that we could consider is geopolitical relations and political exposure. It, this factor is probably what comes to mind directly. But in addition to that, the second category of elements that we could look at is trade environment. So whether the target country has a tendency or history to use export restrictions or prohibitions, their regulatory environment, um, their intellectual property framework, etc. And the third categories of factors that we look at um, could be the incentives and political priorities of the target country. So as Ben mentioned, uh, initiatives in South Korea and Africa and in the EU, this could be the EU strategic autonomy. And of course, in addition to all three categories, there are other factors that we could consider. So, for example, if your target country has a smaller population uh, and then it's easier for the target country to fulfill the domestic medical needs, and this might mean that the, this target country will be less likely to impose export restrictions to fulfill domestic medical needs. So overall, the advice that I'll give to the business is to stay up to date. So internally, the company should develop a robust supply chain data and explore different supply chain options. And externally, the company should follow the geopolitical development closely. And when it comes to engaging with government, I would encourage a layered government engagement strategy. So definitely leverage industry voice, but at the same time, ensure that the company retain an independent communication channel with the government to ensure that specific company or product specific needs could be addressed. Mark, did you want to come in there? Yeah, yeah. So I think Yifang is absolutely right on that. And I, and I think there's also something about um, governments as well being prepared for some of the changes you might see. For example, when I talked before about in silico clinical trials, these are big changes that are being predicted or at least being shaped in part by the FDA in America or the EMA in Europe. The MHRA, which is the sovereign healthcare regulator uh, in the UK, has obviously had a huge amount to deal with post-Brexit and setting up new regulatory frameworks, but it remains somewhat behind on some of these sort of big, interesting uh, regulatory trends across the world. And I think there's something about making sure that governments or regulators uh, make sure that their regulatory frameworks are sort of match fit for the future. We are going to see a lot more digital solutions coming through for a lot of these problems. Um, I think that's in many ways the only way that they can address these quite large um, 
networks of, say, clinical trials, making sure that they are resilient is by taking them online or, 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 or digitally. So I think there is quite a big impetus now to make sure that, certainly post-Brexit, that there are um, sufficient measures in place to, to make sure there is resilience uh, in frameworks. Great. Thank you. I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. But as always, if you, your business or your investment is affected by geopolitical tensions, please don't hesitate to get in touch. You can find contact details for Mark, Yifang and myself and our sectoral teams on the GC website at www.global-council.com or via the link in the podcast notes. Thanks to Ben, Mark and Yifang and thanks to you for listening. For more insights, blogs and analysis, you can visit our website www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council.